Welcome to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. Hello and welcome to the Location Matters podcast. My name is Sarah Butler, I'm your host, and today we're talking about earth observations and remote sensing. In particular, the way users interact with cloud environments and content sources. Earth observations has certainly entered a golden age. Satellites orbiting the Earth are returning an unprecedented amount of data that both enables and encourages better decision-making about the world we live in. So it's clear that when considering this hefty amount of data, working as a data scientist or as somebody in Earth observations or remote sensing, it's no mean feat. But now cloud environments mean that the petabytes of data that is collected from satellites is much more swift to process but it still doesn't come without issues. The push for multi-cloud and multi-content access is growing and we have two really wonderful people in the studio today to riff off about what's needed and what the future may look like for Earth Observations. So we have Sam Atkinson, who is a manager of Earth Observations at NGIS and EO Data Science. Thanks, Thank Sarah. you for being here. Um, and Stuart Finn, who is the director and let me get through this. This is a long list, Stuart. I've been looking at your <laughs> email signature, but I might get you to introduce yourself in a sec. The Director of the Remote Sensing Research Centre, President of the Joint Remote Sensing Research Program. You're a professor at the University of Queensland for the School of Earth and Environmental Sciences. There's a lot to get through. I haven't really covered all of them off, but maybe <laughs> you just want to introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. Uh, thanks, Sarah, for the opportunity to talk with you and Sam today. Yeah, I guess my background is working at university, so I am teaching people how to use satellite imagery and extract information from it. Uh, a lot of the work we do is with state and territory agencies, which is the Joint Remote Sensing Research Program. We help them with their research questions to deliver operational services. And Earth Observation Australia is a, a national body, or if you want a club or professional group, where everybody across government, industry, research uh, can essentially share information and you know, work out how best to use Earth observation. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us. Stuart, just for our listeners to the podcast, is joining us via a Google Hangouts link. And he's, he's in our studio virtually. It's pretty cool. It's the first time we've done this. Um, and as Sam's been on a few podcasts, we've really stepped it up recently with our equipment. So it's really cool that we can do this. But let's dive in. I want to talk about some of the, the problems, I guess, the state of play uh, and the problems that, if any, are at hand right now in the EO data space. What is your experience here? I'll start with you, Stuart. And what do you see as being the roadblocks as working as a practitioner and a teacher in this area? So, so roadblocks you're talking about, things like what stops us getting access to data? What yeah stops people being able to use it longer term and you know, companies using it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think that like we've said and acknowledged there in, in the introduction to the episode, I think that where you guys are now, from what I understand it in your industry, is that mm -hmm. things are much better. They're faster. It's easier to process yep. things. It's easier to get the job done. But that considered, where else can you see room for improvement? I think that there's a couple of reasons, three main reasons. I'll just start with, with one. I think, and I don't know how to describe this, and you and Sam might have some ideas on it, uh, but taking that imagery from a satellite, an aircraft or a drone, which is essentially a picture, and turning it into uh, a map 
uh, or you know an estimate of you know the, the height of buildings or you know, the, the yield of a crop um, takes a number of different steps uh, and takes specialist training in multiple areas as well as all of the, the data and the processing that sits behind it and often what people see is the end product and the start and go oh, okay if you get satellite images well, magic, I can do predict wheat yield around the world every month. It's like, yeah, but someone who's probably spent 10, 20 years working on the ground, understanding that environment and how to basically extract that information from imagery um, has done that uh, and built the algorithm and tested it. A lot of that is still invisible. I, I don't know how to, to, to solve that particular problem, but that's a big challenge at the moment. People are like, awesome, we've got all these data sets. We can do all this stuff now. It's like, well, you need the, the people and the companies and the agencies in between. Mm, Sam, what are your yeah, thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I'm kind of a glass half full sort of guy. Um, so I, I see these, this problem of having a, a massive amount of, you know, sensor data becoming available, particularly in the satellite space. There's just so many satellites coming up. And, you know, this massive ecosystem of both open source and, you know, commercial software and software as a service platforms emerging is a great challenge to have. I suppose a lot of the work I do is really focused on companies and how do you integrate remote sensing and those solutions into into business decision making and so a lot of the challenges are around really identifying what is the best technology stack or, or where a particular application might fit within a technology stack for a business and that can be challenging and yeah as, as somebody that's been working in this field for a while I mean one of the key challenges I've always had is is finding enough people to work in this field so the I think in general I've been pretty vocal about this all around the place is um, we're not turning out enough graduates with remote sensing data science experience, but particularly in remote sensing. Stuart's doing his part, and I've recruited a few of his um, uh, <laughs> students that you've supervised in your PhD, and they've actually all been universally awesome, so thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so that's, that's another one of the real challenges is just finding the skill sets. There's, there's huge demand, and it's, it's, uh, it's challenging to meet that demand without like Stuart says, those people to take an image and turn it into something meaningful. I can see Stuart nodding there as you were saying that. <laughs> yeah, could I just add something onto that? Absolutely. I mean, I think what, what Sam said leads exactly to, to where we get to because often when you're talking to undergraduates or people retraining, they're like, well, tell me the job description. What do I look for for people in this area? And, like, and then there's a five-minute discussion of it's everything from doing this sort of activity in a local council or state government or commonwealth, you know, to working with startup companies or multinational companies. And it's like, well, there's often no, it's not like you get a professional qualification in one area. It is, it's data science, but it's a certain amount of environmental science and communications as well. So I, I think our, our challenge is demonstrating that, look, you know, there is this ability to have a career in this area. It is really rewarding um, and partly also because it's changing so so rapidly at, at the moment. And I think that's that's where Sam was going with some of this as well, that the rapid change is what you're having trouble communicating to people that they can get on board and help with that. Yep. Yep. I've definitely had some discussions with some of um, the team we have in the office, with the data scientists, and I was talking to a couple of them recently and they said, you know, it is hard to communicate what you're actually doing because every day it's so different. You know, every day it's a different problem. 
Yeah, it is. That needs solving. Yeah, that's that's actually how we describe it too. Um, you know, people we're interviewing to recruit is it's applied problem solving. That is the description of the job. Um, and these yep. are the skills you're going to need. Yeah. There we go. That's what you all have to write in your job descriptions. Applied problem solving. <laughs> yeah. and Sam's just figured it out. One fell swoop. Problem solving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. it's applied problem solving. Like you could work in any range of environments. You, know, you are using sort of maths and technical skills. Uh, it's changing rapidly. You work with different people and, you, and you're solving you know, real problems. And it, that, that does take us to another part of that challenge, which is the, the choice of data sets and it takes us to the multi-cloud problem uh, as well. Uh, I guess I, like I agree with the last half full point that Sam made is like it, we have this amazing range of information to choose from and equipping people to make that choice and turn it into information is our, our biggest challenge at the moment. That kind of leads nicely into the next thing I wanted to ask about, which was, I guess, the content side of things. I mean, we, we do have listeners that probably aren't so familiar with Earth observations, remote sensing, and exactly what is required. But as I touched on, there's a huge amount of data that you guys have to work with, and it comes from all sorts of different places. Something I learned recently from one of my colleagues, Nathan, was that some of those vendors who provide that data make it open for consumption, awesome, you guys can use that. But then there are sometimes these sort of vendor lock-in kind of agreements. I'm not saying we name names, but is that a challenge for you? Do you want to go first, Sam? Yeah, I'll kick that off. So, yeah, it, it's pretty multifaceted, you know, like we've kind of touched on, it's a really diverse um, ecosystem and there's a, there's a lot of stuff happening in all sorts of places. I mean, certainly from, you know, the main government Earth observation programs from NASA and ESA, they're fantastic in providing their data. There's multiple ways to access it, multiple processing levels you can take depending on, you know, what you're doing with it. So we can't really speak highly enough of how good those agencies have been, but also how well they collaborate globally. It's hugely impressive and it's, it's really, um, you know, lifting the in- industry as a whole. And then, I mean, commercial providers, you know, they're another part of that ecosystem and, you know, it's, a comm- it's much more transactional. Um, mm. So things do become somewhat harder. Some are certainly good in terms of the APIs they provide, so um, really simplifying and enabling you to automate those um, transactions. And I'll say, oh, we'll name Planet because their API is awesome. Both of their APIs, I should say, they've got two, again, how many options you have with these things. And then also, I suppose, there's, there's been a lot of movement recently towards cloud-optimised GeoTIFFs, so actually um, you know, making GeoTIFFs easier to work with in kind of cloud-native environments. So that's been, yeah, another really good development. And that's a lot of that's flown out of as well, that kind of collaboration within the remote sensing community globally. I think that that last point's a really good one and there's two levels to it. This is an activity which is, is built on global cooperation across governments. And we've come historically from a place where this satellite imagery has been a, a government-provided public good uh, and people recognise it's it's for you know it's it's critical information, it's essential infrastructure that uh, countries need to operate uh, an industry as well. But the flip side of that is it's created an expectation that oh, it's satellite data, you don't have to pay for it. Now where we've moved to now, with a, a much broader set of companies involved in collecting and distributing imagery. These are private companies, they are there essentially to make money 
and you know that they're providing services and capabilities which even though governments are delivering things freely private industry can often do things much more quickly much more flexibly and that's what we saw with companies like planet who were able to shift to a completely different model of small lots of small satellites providing global coverage so it is still private industry and they have to make money to keep going the point i'd leave off on that maybe as a way to talk a bit more is this is why there needs to be more of a dialogue between private industry and government about how to deal with provision of data expectations and maybe you know countries governments could actually enter into large scale contracts to provide data sources where industry can add on to that and they could put it in a range of different sources so you know that way the private industry is being given the funds to to keep going the government's investing in what would become a public good which a whole bunch of people can value add on uh, as well i mean i think that might be a helpful way to move forward in that space i think you you really need both of them government and private industry together because it's it's not going to happen separately now given the way space industry is developing is that the direction we're headed do you think that too sam i hope so yeah i hope so I mean, it's, it's make your <laughs> life easier <laughs> well, maybe yeah, yeah oh no it definitely would but i mean uh, kind of Stuart alludes to the well if you go back a step if you look at you know landsat scenes used to cost you know a bit over a thousand dollars australian in the um you know was that nearly 20 years ago now and not many got used um as soon as nasa made, started making that data freely available there's basically been exponential growth in the use of landsat data and myriad applications and global monitoring programs coming out of that huge amount of scientific research you know adding adding to that body of knowledge just by that one action and it's really hard to put a figure on you know what is the value of that public good of making this data available just as open access mm. yeah. if i could just add on that. yeah i mean i think that that multiplication factor we've seen a couple of reports over the last two years looking at okay if the government is providing these services you know, and then looking at how many companies use it what essential products and services it provides information wise and then there's also a whole range of new activities which come out there and it's it's really such an enabling service that it's it's worth the investment and it it is you know regularly provided appropriate quality satellite data is critical information infrastructure for any country to invest in and hopefully we can move down that track yeah definitely absolutely I kind of want to then use this this part of the conversation to lead into the cloud connection in this piece. We've kind of there yep. just touched on the content. Now, I won't lie, I feel very out of my depth talking about this with you guys. But maybe, Sam, could you explain, I guess, the, the complications that you might face with using different cloud environments? Because I know, for, for example, like for a platform, you would use Google Earth Engine maybe to do a project or do a job and have all of these different content sources coming in. What is What do we mean by multi-cloud environment and how how is it being impacted with this sort of private content providers versus public? What's the situation? Again, it's fairly complicated in that, you know, well, there's only a few cloud providers, but um, in many ways they can provide the same service that can be built on site if you want to. Again, it kind of comes back to any particular organisation or business working out or what tech stack have they got? What 
services do they need to kind of add into it and then where it fits? Again, we've got this luxury of a lot of options. Yes, yeah, so a Google Earth Engine is a software as a service, but it's closed source. You know, I think it's awesome. Um, but there's a lot, of, a lot of other options. So, you know, it's the open data cube infrastructure, open source available, um, and you can take that and essentially build your own infrastructure um, using a cloud, using local on-site infrastructure if you wanted to. So it's really a case of working out what fits into your tech stack and what your analysis needs to be. A lot of remote sensing doesn't require um, a cloud platform. I'm sure it makes things easier to not have to you know, be constantly buying hard drives and jamming them into a desktop and, um, you know, downloading and archiving data. We've all played that game over a number of years, so it's nice not to play that game for a while. But some things can be really simply, you can get great insights from downloading a Sentinel-2 image and doing a few things in QGIS or a Python script and, and get a great outcome really simply. Yeah, coming back to your question, it's, in my mind, it's really a case of any particular organisation working out what tech stack is relevant to them. Uh, I tend not to buy into the arguments of this vendor versus that vendor because mm. of I don't like Pepsi, I like Coke, you know. Yeah. Um, I think it's a discussion, but I don't think it's an issue for the industry yeah. personally. But mm. when we talk about multi-cloud in Earth observations, what do we mean? Are we talking about just the ability to like bring in data from providers who are using like one might be using AWS, one might be using Google Cloud, one might be using Microsoft. Is that what we mean when we talk about it, Stuart? That's that's my interpretation of it, and I, you know, the direction Sam was going with, it is about diversity of choice in terms of what you need in terms of information, products, uh, and services, uh, and building that understanding is and communicating what's available to people is a really important part of that. It, it's changing quite quickly all the time. And again, I think that's the role that, you know, people that sit in the Earth observation application space can actually play. I guess it's a double-edged sword in the sense that the diversity of providers is, is a strength because there's a range of different data sets that you can apply for different scales of problems, different answers, and again, EO professionals are the ones that get that. The multi-cloud environment, it's... Yeah, I'm not quite sure how that's going to work out uh, because at the moment you, you do have to choose roughly where you sit. Some organisations do invest time and money in people you know, who can you know, work across Google Earth Engine, AWS, or you know, they might use other platforms, they might use the Sentinel Hub, they might use you know, Maxi's systems. Um, you know, there's, a, you know, there's a whole range of them. But it takes a lot of time to get up to speed to doing that. And the easier it's going to be to move your code, I think, between where the data and the processing is. And that's what we're seeing in a number of companies in Australia, people are doing, you know, they build a code base, it's well documented. They can take that to different areas uh, and shift it around. Diversity is really important in that context. and. Those platforms are important because it also lets people monetize the products and services out to people. And that's only something we've seen in the last couple of years with EO. Having that ability gives us, I think, the, the proper ability as well to cost out, well, look, this is what this service will cost, you know, basically per month, per year, you know, per unit area as well. So. I, it's it is a it's a good thing that we've got the multi-cloud problem at the moment, and uh, 
I guess the last point with that is the one thing that makes it work is common file formats. Um, Sam alluded to that before, and that that is one where there has been a fair bit of international um, cooperation, and we've had companies uh, in the US and also with government agencies in the US and Europe working together to make sure you know we have things like um, Stack and you know the, the cloud optimized GeoTIFF formats um, so that people can go to the different areas and you know, take their approach and apply it wherever they want and it's documented. Um, we are moving away from a one-size-fits-all approach but there's, there's still some parts that you need in, in there and, and I think that's one of the key ones. Yeah, consistency in file formats and even, I mean, I, th I think we're seeing a pretty um, strong move towards Python in our space. It uh, was popular for a long time, still certainly is, and, and certainly is for analysis these days. But yeah, I think seeing that consistency around Python, what's being done with Jupyter Notebooks to help communicate a piece of communicator script to other users of it is, yeah, really good. And the ability to take questions to the data rather than the other way around is um, yeah, a lot of what Stuart was talking about there. And just going back to... The, the content sources now that we've discussed that and we talk about the private enterprise model, we talk about things that are open for consumption, we talked a little bit about the software like Google Earth Engine or the open source stuff. If you are dealing with a, a private vendor, is it that you're sort of, and sort of Stuart, you kind of locked, you kind of mentioned there the one size fits all thing. Is it that you're, you're getting their data using their cloud and that you're using their their software as well to like do the project. Is that how it works? Generally not. Oh, okay. Uh, generally not. When you um, if we're talking about purchasing satellite imagery or mm -hmm. you know commissioning an aerial survey, you, you just get the you data. get the data. Um, having said that, Maxar, Airbus, and, and probably some others that I'm not aware of um, are certainly starting to provide that service where you can rather than you know purchasing a scene, you can work with the data set within their platform, and they've got their own um, you know costing models around that. So we're seeing those options really emerging now. Yeah, I think it's, it is, as Sam says, like an emerging range of options that are out there. Um, some of them are, you know, companies that they do want to put everything together because they run the satellites. They want to make it available and people to, to come there, you know, and, and that's the model that you sort of see. But it's, there is scope for people to just have, okay, here is a platform for analysis and we're starting to see some platforms where you can take your algorithm onto that platform and choose which source you want to bring your data from and generally there's a processor associated with it. Um, so we, we may see more approaches like that in future and I guess that I mean, those sites are also running the model of well you can put this up and if people you can actually People can use it and, you know, basically if they pay for it, you know, the provider of that site gets 30 cents in every dollar mm -hmm. and you take, seven, you know, 70 cents uh, away. Um, so I think we're going to see that gradually evolve over time. The, the biggest bottleneck in all of this is shifting data sets. So, I mean, that's the one thing you want to try and avoid if you're in the basically doing what, you know, SAM and NGIS does is you don't want to be shifting things around all the time because that yep. takes time yep. uh, and money and it is you know essentially like 
trying to get an elephant and put it through a straw. Yep. Not going to work. Yes. <laughs> Good so analogy. Yes. Yeah. So in a perfect world then, you'd just be able to do all of these things just a lot faster, more fast yeah. all the time. I sit near Sam in the office, by the way, Stuart, and it's always about <laughs> speed. Speed is key. Yeah. Yeah. Getting too it slow, done. Yeah. Everything's too yeah. slow. Yeah. So yeah. I think perfect world, you know, <laughs> what, what do you guys want to see? in this space? Where do, where do we need to develop? Where do we need to make improvements? We've talked about a few things there, but, you know, what, what would a great day in the office look like for you, Sam? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've great days in the office all the you time. You do have no. Place. I, I, um, I, I joke, I joke. Oh, look, the, we're going through, yeah, uh, I don't know, you mentioned it before, a real golden age with um, Earth observation at the moment, with the, particularly with the number of satellites emerging. We're actually seeing computational power catch up to what we've been trying to do for years. And, you know, the advances in machine learning applied to geospatial are really getting me excited at the moment. So, yeah, it's fantastic. We're going to see more content. And I suppose, is it going to be easier to integrate? Um, I, I think that's the challenge for the industry, is how do we actually ensure that we are using common file formats that, you know, we're getting enough ability to transfer approaches to different data sets because there's going to be a lot out there and, and between platform. How does a, so how does a perfect world then work for you, Stuart? How do you see it all unfolding, let's say, in the next, you know, one to two years? Okay, a perfect world in terms of the Earth observation space is a... I feel like I need a day to think about it, but... Uh, <laughs> It would be in a couple of ways. Uh, in the data access and processing space, it would be that you could hop onto websites and basically go, I want to map this particular environmental property, or I want to find buildings, and you would be directed to, well, here are a range of services that deliver that. Some of these are government services, which are, you know, ad delivered at a certain level and may not be up to date. These are private companies that do it. These are their services which you can subscribe to. So from a, a user's point of view, it makes it easier for them to see what's available and what they can access. Um, from the, the point of view of like, you know, people like ourselves and how we work, uh, it is being able to see all the different data sources which are up there being able to go to online cloud environments where the data are there, there's large processing engines uh, and you can do large or small processing with the software of your choice or you, you can bring in your own algorithm and you can, it would be seamless to go between, you know, essentially Earth engines, Maxars, GBDX, you know, Airbus's UP42, uh, Planet's uh, system and doing those things and we would also have an education system you know where we are able to through universities and also high schools show that look there is a clear career stream in this and as, as Sam said it's 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 problem solving but it's using all of these different approaches uh, and it's it's technical it can be environmentally focused it can be infrastructure focused as well so you know, I think my ideal solution being an academic has three parts. There's like the people who are going to use what we produce, but they can do that a lot more easily. Uh, that we, we're able to access the data and processing um, capabilities a lot more openly and seamlessly, and it's costed properly. And that we've got access 
to sort of or an ability to interact with uh, an educational system here and overseas which delivers suitably trained people. More yeah. remote sensing people, please. Yes. I think that's yes, the, that would, that would, <laughs> that's the that ideal. That would improve my life as well. Yeah. yeah. Actually, just on that, um, we are uh, going to be running sort of workshops on this on upcoming forums and meetings when we, we can meet again as a nation. Um, we'll continue to do it online and, and this is something I've been quite keen to talk to people about. I've talked with a number of, like one of Sam's former employees about it, uh, as well as Sam and Nathan at NGIS that and we and also people in the companies here like Aussie who we work with that you know we, we need to have a proper discussion about how to get you know people into this area because it is very hard at the moment even though it's all this cool exciting stuff that we're doing all the time yeah I'll definitely be keen to uh, yeah, work with you to encourage more people into cool. it. yeah definitely. Yeah. I guess, well, we have, um, you know, quite a large listenership. We're very lucky now after two years of the podcast that we have a lot of people that listen who are really interested in, I guess, GIS, cartography, remote sensing, you name it. I guess if people may be listening who don't really know if this is something that they want to dive into, but they're certainly interested in it, do either of you have any recommendations of like, newsletters or feeds that you follow or interesting places where you can can go to to get information about earth observations that might sort of whet their appetite. Stuart, do you have one? Yeah, I've just sent you a link to a, an organisation called Earth Observation Australia. Um, there's a website which I think we can make accessible after this. Definitely. Uh, people just search for Earth Observation Australia, it will come up. That is the national group that sits across all of this area but it does have a resources page that explains what we do and how to get into it. I mean, that's a good starting point for at least understanding you know, what's happening in this area in Australia and also entry into education points because we do list all the, the universities and other websites with helpful information uh, as, as well. So it's, and it, it does need to draw on all of those, the, the groups that you mentioned are in, in your listenership. I mean, we use a whole range of different skills and applications but um, i'm sure sam knows some other resources than that blanket one that i've just listed sam's all over twitter you follow a lot of people on yeah. twitter there mm -hmm. might just be people that you recommend yeah. or even yeah newsletters mm -hmm. that you receive um yeah it's mm -hmm. probably um twitter's excellent for the remote sensing community um in terms of news but um it also i think really shows the the community that is there so that's where i'd start start looking at who's using remote sensing, who the applications mm -hmm. are. Um, so I think that might really open up eyes to people thinking, well, where, where am I going to start or, or, or take my career? And as you look at all the global mining companies using remote sensing and using it heavily, the uh, government agencies using it for, for a variety of applications, you know, environmental monitoring is a big part of it, um, and, and all of the private companies doing really awesome stuff. So it's, it's being used a lot. Um, I think perhaps maybe we need to help people recognise that oh, hey, that's actually an application of remote sensing that's delivered this thing that you are using and is cool and is relevant to society. So I don't exactly know how we actually start pointing those things out to people, but if you're listening um, and you are interested in remote sensing and want to hear more about it, yeah, I'd definitely recommend Twitter and, yeah, start following people. Start with me, <laughs> my list of followers, uh, EA Data Science um, and, and the people we follow. And, um, Google Earth Engine also put up some really cool stuff. I follow Rebecca Moore, who yep. is their 
CEO. Uh, uh, yes, not sure yeah. the exact title. But Managing yeah. Director CEO. She's ahead of Google Earth Engine. She always reposts really cool things. Yep. EO Data Science at the moment is running uh, an initiative, like an online initiative called hashtag GEE Impact, which is all about the people, the people who are doing this great work, the people who are using Earth observations to demonstrate impact. They recently released a blog of a girl doing a water scarcity project mm-hmm. um, and how she's using... Google Earth Engine to, to help communicate the, the findings of that project. Um, we have another one about perennial crops in the Riverina. Yes. Um, James Brinkhoff, who actually was the person that suggested we get together to make this podcast. So thank you, James. Um, so th- there is some stuff there on the EO Data Science website, but anyone is welcome to, I believe, take part in that campaign. Is that right, Sam? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great. So what we'll do is we'll put in the podcast notes for anyone that's listening, just links to some of those resources. And to access that, you just need to go to ngis.com.au. Under the newsroom menu, there is a podcast link. So just go there and you'll be able to see this episode. You'll be able to see links to all of the really cool, useful stuff that these guys have mentioned today. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Stuart, thank you for thank you for joining remotely. No, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity, and it's great to talk to you, uh, listeners as well. Uh, this is how we're going to push things forward. Thank you, Sam, so much. No, you're welcome, Sarah. Okay, and for anyone that is interested in subscribing to the Location Matters podcast by NGIS, you can do that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You've been listening to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. To find more episodes or to read our blog, check out our website, ngis.com.au.